the Professionally Speaking Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Professionally Speaking Podcast. My name is Ryan Warner, Director and Executive Coach at Professional Presentation Services. And with me today is David Hill. He's the Director of Financial Planning currently at Dentsu International. Uh, before this, he's got much experience in the startup and the sports media space, and he's a CPA and CA. Dave, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Yeah, of course. I know we've been trying to coordinate this for a while, and I'm glad it's finally come to uh, come to fruition. Yeah, me too. Me too. So first, to get started and to jump right into this, I'd like the listeners to learn a little bit about your journey coming into the finance industry. Is finance something you've always been interested in? Can you give us a little bit of background on that? I think of growing up, it wasn't necessarily that I was interested in, you know, finance, accounting, things like that, but I was always interested in money. You know, I was always trying to save money. Like even as a kid growing up, I think I would go through the closet and search through my mom's jackets and things like that. And and try and find money, put it in my piggy bank. Um, and uh, coming out of high school, uh, I knew that I was going to have to pay for my own schooling. Um, and so one of the, the things that uh, I knew about was at Brock was their co-op uh, program for accounting. And uh, one of my friends at the time, his, his brother was going through it and he was making great money going through it, um, able to pay for his own schooling. So I thought this might be a a good option and I've taken accounting in high school as much as I could and I, I did really well in it so I felt like that would be a good good avenue to go down I was good at it I knew it paid well would help pay for my schooling I get a lot of work experience going through school and that was the main reason why I ultimately got into it everything kind of ended up turning out very different in the real real world in terms of how all the different streams that you could go through in finance that I didn't really know about when I went into the program. So uh, just building on that for a moment, you piqued my interest. What's one thing when you got into the finance world that you thought, you know what, I this isn't exactly what I envisioned. I'm going to pivot and go in another direction. I think the lifestyle for public accounting firms. So like audit in particular is a grind. There's, you know, you have busy season from January to April. It is a huge slog of hours and work. Um, you got deadlines that you got to meet for a lot of public companies when you're going through audit and it's very time sensitive and there's a lot to get through. Uh, and then, you know, you could have summer clients and fall clients with like different year ends and things like that. And so the fun never stops. Um, so that, that just wasn't really for me. Um, I always make the joke that I, I wouldn't go back if I left my wallet there. Um, but, but at the end of the day, like, and that's nothing against, uh, you know, where I, I started out at EY, uh, that's just, you know, the nature of, of the beast of, of audit, but the intangibles that I learned there and, and everything like that is invaluable for my career and was a huge catalyst too. That would be one thing for sure. And then the other is just that. There's so many uh, CPAs, CAs at the time, like so many that went on to go and do things that weren't finance, things that weren't accounting. For instance, Paul Beeston, uh, you know, like I grew up in Welland. He's from Welland. He ran the Blue Jays for many, many years. He was their, their CEO president uh, through the World Series. You know, there's so many, so many different avenues that you can go down in finance and you're not just really bound to your own finance roles. You can really 
branch out into the other areas because you see everything in finance. You see how a business operates, how it makes money, how it all kind of fits together. So you're in a really good spot to do that. Even when I was at Rogers, their first CEO, when I was there, he was a CA by trade. So uh, they're everywhere. They're all over in business. They're not really just bound to accounting and finance, which is great. Yeah, that's interesting because I imagine most people, when they think of a CEO or they think of uh, another, say, a leadership position in a, in a company, an established organization, they might wonder, like, yeah, how did that person get there? Are they an MBA? I mean, that's, I guess, what the layperson would assume is that they must have studied business, but accounting maybe gives you a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Dave, in your current position, what types of roles and responsibilities do you regularly perform, like, throughout your weeks? So we do FP&A, um, I head up that, that pillar of finance for Dentsu. Uh, what we typically do, FP&A can be a very broad spectrum of things, um, but what my group does is really centered around like budgets, forecasts, uh, very much more like forward looking than anything, but kind of using those uh, looking backwards to help identify some trends to help with those projections for the forward looking numbers. But it's all budgets, forecasts, there's different business cases that you might do, different ad hoc analysis that the business needs or executives need. That's that's kind of the crux of, of what we do. So we're, we're very much more forward facing as, as opposed to a typical accounting function that might be more backwards looking at what actually happened. Oh, okay. I see. And your the acronym you mentioned earlier on, I'm not familiar, what, what does that mean? FP&A is financial planning and analysis. Gotcha. Okay. And and when you say they uh, request sometimes these ad hoc kind of strategies for moving forward, does that entail you you have to kind of be creative in, in determining what's the best path? Yeah, it depends on what they're looking for. Some of it might be, you know, they just need a breakdown of the costs in a certain, you know, department or you know, across a certain time period, you know, what, what happened in this quarter, what's it look like for this quarter, trying to get ahead of things. Typically they're all different. Every request is different really. Um, and there's always a purpose to each of them. It might come, come down from global. It might come down from somebody in the business was asking your boss about something. So they're all very, very different and typically pretty unique. So a lot of the times you end up building a lot of this stuff once and then you never really see it again. Um, <laughs> you always try to build it so that it's you can use it more than once and just in case. Um, but but yeah, they're, they're all very different. All right. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So our listeners who are not familiar with the financial sector, can you explain to them, I guess, what types of communication typically take place that you would see in the workplace? Yeah, for for my group in particular, so financial planning analysis, like I said, we're very much budgets, forecasts. So we do a lot of variance analytics. Um, that might be, you know, for the month that just passed or quarter or year, how did we do versus budget? How did we do versus forecast? So a lot of what we might might present back to the business and communicate are those the the analytics for for what just happened and so you have to make sure that you're putting it in terms that the business is also going to understand because a lot of people in the business they're not some are more savvy with numbers than others and some you kind of really have to hold their hand through the whole process 
to help them understand what actually happened. So you always have to remember who your audience is. That's a big, big thing uh, in terms of communication for for finance folks. Um, it would be, you know, uh, the one good example I would give you would be when I was back at, at the Blue Jays, when you're dealing with the scouting department or player development and they've got their budgets and you put them together for them and then you have to explain some of the variance analytics to them, like what just happened, you're short, you're over, here's what you have left to spend. You have to make sure that you're very careful in terms of how you're communicating that stuff to them because these are guys that, you know, they watch grown men throw balls or hit balls all day, right? So you have to make sure that you're, you're giving it to them in, in layman's terms, right? So you, you can't use the same sort of finance speak that you normally would uh, when you're just talking to other finance people to explain variances versus budgets or, or forecast. So you really got to just kind of dump it down, help them focus on where they need to focus their attention on. That would be, you know, that's kind of the main main thing that we're communicating most of the time. Right. That sounds interesting how you, you identified that early on, I'm assuming in your career that who you're speaking to really determines the, the type of language you use and the approach to get through to them, right? Yeah, exactly. So if you're talking to a finance person versus, you know, somebody in the scouting department at the Blue Jays, you're not going to tell the person in the scouting department, oh yeah, we had some stuff on the balance sheet. We had to release an accrual. You know, we had to, um, you know, we, we found, we found some money, right? Like there's, there isn't uh, you can't really use those explanations when you're talking to somebody in the business. So you got to craft the story when you go back to them, when you're talking to somebody in finance, yeah, that stuff will probably make sense to them and, and they're going to get it. So you got to craft this story, multiple stories to multiple different uh, stakeholders. Have you ever seen in your experience, have you ever seen communication go wrong or maybe in front of your eyes or maybe you heard from it secondhand something misfired? Um, yeah, I, I think one good example that I could give you is there's, there's a company that I worked at that they... I I just joined and it was in my first couple of months and all I kept hearing was how are sales going down, but commissions are going up for the sales team. And everybody kept saying, Oh, you know, it's because of, it's because of X, Y, and Z. We've already gone through this many times. People just still don't get it. They still don't understand it. So I said, okay, why don't you like, show me, show me what it is that you presented to them and help me understand you know, why, why this makes sense to everybody. And so they came over that they, they showed it to me, but it was really just like 10 numbers on a page with a couple of sentences. And for me, like, I didn't really understand it just based off of that. So I can only imagine how a non-finance person would understand that as well. And so it launched this, you know, full-on investigation. I had my team do. And ultimately what we found was, you know, there's, say four, five plus different types of commission structures at the company. A couple of them work similarly, a couple of them don't. There's some one-off ones that people didn't even know about that really existed. And we kind of had to streamline commissions and, and action on that. But, you know, ultimately we, we were able to explain it. It, it turned into a 40 page deck as opposed to this one, one page, uh, you know, 10 numbers, two sentence page, it turned into this 40, 40 page deck with presentations to everybody in the C-suite about how it works, how it operates. Here's the flaws in it. 
here's why. And you could clearly see on the graphs and, and give it the examples, multiple examples of what would happen. So what would happen when sales overachieved and what would happen to commissions? Then what would happen if they underachieved, but say a couple of groups overachieved, what would happen? And it, it was pretty evident that there was a, a bit of a flaw in terms of some of the, like the accelerators and the, the commission structure that we identified. But that would be one example where obviously the communication previously wasn't great. And it's all I heard about for the first few months that I was there. So then I decided, okay, let's dive into this. And then that's what we uncovered. And then after that, you never heard about it again. So people got it after that. And then there was actionable, there was actions that people took on that insight. Right. Yeah. That's a great story. Just extending on that, I guess I'm asking you kind of to hypothesize now, but what would happen if you weren't there and that didn't get resolved? Do you expect it would have snowballed or kind of, you know, shown its face in another area? Uh, I think people probably would have just kept asking the same questions and then hopefully somebody would have just taken the time to actually break it down and collect all the data that you needed to be able to put that analysis together. Uh, you know, hopefully that, that, that would be what would happen. But I think the question would just continue to be asked and people would have kept giving the same answer um, without really going into all the details and putting together a comprehensive analysis. So the problem just what you expected or you would have anticipated, let's say that the problem would have lingered and people would have continued to you know, spend their time asking questions and being confused as to why the numbers were the way they are and less productive. Probably because I, like it was a question that people had before I got there. And then for the few months that I was there, like it was it was the question that I heard in every single forecast meeting. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure it probably would have dragged on at least a little longer, um, if not quite a bit longer, uh, until somebody just actually dove into it. Yeah, I imagine it would have as well. Um, so Dave, you've worked in obviously startup companies all the way up to, to large, uh, large established organizations. And I'm sure you've seen your fair share of effective communication versus ineffective communication in the workplace. Can you share with us a, an experience that you've had where you saw really high quality communication that was really effective in a, a circumstance? Yeah, just in, I think just in general, as opposed to one instance in particular, I mean, I can give you a couple of things. One would be times where anybody really takes the time to kind of eliminate any ambiguity or any gray area in an ask to somebody. So a lot of times you might get asked things in finance, there's all sorts of requests and ad hoc analysis that you need. And, you know, sometimes people may leave out certain key things. And I think just always making sure that you've got like as dumbed down and as detailed as you can get, uh, because oftentimes uh, you're just going to get things back from people in all sorts of different formats. So like an example of that, uh, someone who I learned from uh, when I first joined at Rogers was very much try and lead the horse to water. So uh, if you, you're going to ask for things back from people, those six or seven people are all going to interpret things very differently. And you might get six or seven different types of responses back. So always try and like 
if, if it makes sense to put together a template for them to kind of streamline the, the data collection process or get the information that you need. And then you very clearly outline what, you know, what they need to fill in, what they need to do, how to fill it in. Um, it makes that process a whole lot easier because if you don't do that, you're going to get six or seven different formats in, you know, six or seven different ways, like a, an email, an Excel file, a Word doc, whatever. And it's really hard to pull all that stuff together. Um, so at least doing some of the work for people to help like streamline that whole process is super effective uh, when you're trying to get, collect a lot of data from people mm -hmm. and compile things. So I think that's a really, really effective strategy. And then also just leaving nothing, nothing, um, up up to uh up to like leaving no questions unanswered in that that communication to them um so like i said just being as detailed as possible even if you think it's a given mm -hmm. that somebody should just understand it just mm -hmm. put it in anyways um because it, you know everybody's going to interpret it differently right yeah it sounds like part of your job is actually to uh, kind of preemptively or, or rather proactively anticipate what they might have difficulty understanding or what they might confuse. And so you kind of have to try to think ahead, okay, where could this go off the rails? And then, all right, if it, if it were to, how would I rectify that in advance? You can build that into the initial communication. Oh yeah, exactly. It's, I'm always thinking, okay, like how, how can you make this as foolproof as possible? Um, you know, it's, it's a little easier when you're dealing with just finance people, let's say, um, but even then it can get confusing too, uh, trying to collect information. But when you're dealing with people that are more on the business side that are outside of finance, that's where you've got to be very cognizant of uh, how do I get what I need from these people as effectively and efficiently as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's where oftentimes they appreciate where you kind of try to streamline the process more than anything and and collect the data uh, uniformly um so that's always really really critical when you're dealing with the business so yeah you're always anticipating where how could somebody screw this up how could somebody misinterpret this and then you're just trying to mitigate that as much as possible question for you about the the different leaders and the the different i guess uh superior supervisors you've worked with over the years how have you found their communication to be when they're speaking with you and with others i think you know a lot of the cfos that i've i've been a part of their teams in the past and, and their organizations they've all been really really good um you know, a lot of them, you know, being at, at three public companies, be it Rogers, Chorus, uh, Dentsu now as well, all of the CFOs are very top notch. They're very, uh, they come prepared, they're engaging, they know what points to hit on. Um, and, you know, it helped at Rogers to kind of keep the crowd engaged because they try and keep it a little bit fun too and have some surprise guests like Raptors player or Blue Jays player or things like that. So it kind of breaks up things a little bit because a lot of the times finance and accounting uh, uh, you know presentations can get very dry um, <laughs> especially if a lot of the times those finance people are the ones putting those numbers together and you've already seen those numbers over and over again so you kind of already understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, it it can get a little bit dry and, and boring at times but I've always found uh, the the three CFOs that I've I've 
seen present so far. They've all been top notch just to really hit on the key points, really, really great storytellers. I think that's something that's so critical for, for people to advance in finance is how do you really craft the story? How do you tell the story behind the numbers? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you spin it sometimes to be, you know, when it's bad, how do you spin it to, to bring, you know, shine some light on it and make it look a little better? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the the messages that I that I preach, um, I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast, but in any industry, I believe that hard skills are definitely a necessity. And they're in finance. I'm assuming it's no different. They need to be effective at analyzing and forecasting and budgeting and interpreting numbers. But it's the um, I don't want to say soft skills, but it's the communication that really helps people ascend and helps people succeed. Uh, and reach higher levels because they're able to effectively lead more and they're able to be more productive and have less, let's say, like performance issues down the road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's communication is so critical. All right, Dave, I know um, your time is valuable and we're, we're getting to near the end here, but uh, the final question I have for you is, if someone's starting out their career and they're thinking about going into finance, uh, what advice would you give to them uh, regarding communication or otherwise? I just want to give you the floor here to kind of share some wisdom. Don't do it. <laughs> <I'm> kidding. <laughs> Go into engineering. Um, yeah, I think for for anybody who's who's going to get into it, I think um, you know if you're looking at programs in university, I think that finding one that gives you co-op opportunities and work experience in school is massive um, and it sets you apart from a lot of other people because you come out of school with work experience under your belt and you're gonna come out of school so much farther ahead than that person who didn't. Um, So like for me, for example, I went to Brock, they had four work terms, that's 16 months worth of work experience. So when I joined EY uh, coming out of school, I already had 16 months under my belt. I had to manage people that were were my same age or even older than than me at the time too. Um, And you progressed a lot faster. Whereas somebody who came out of school, they've got to do a full year before they get move on to the next level. Mm, For me, I did eight months, moved on to the next level, eight months, moved on to the next level, mainly because you're going through busy seasons um, and it's, you know, much more condensed in terms of your learning and development on the job. Um, but you're already basically two years ahead of those people uh, when you come out of school. And then the intangibles are, are massive at a, a young age where you're, you're managing a team, you're dealing with, with clients, um, you know, a lot of senior people at clients and things like that. So the public accounting route is, it's a grind for sure, but it was invaluable in terms of just the intangibles that you would learn throughout your career. Um, and you you develop all of those key communication skills and tactics because uh, you constantly have to adapt to every situation because when you're on a, a job for audit or um, tax or something like that, you're constantly trying to get information from people who don't want to deal with you. Um, <laughs> Right. So you're causing more work for them and you're checking their work. So, you know, you develop uh, 
really, really great skill set at a young age uh, that is just invaluable and stays with you for the rest of your career and just how to deal with with certain people. Because even once you leave a firm and you get into the industry and you start working at other companies, uh, you're always going to have people that are, you know, difficult to deal with in the business as well. Uh, and you're constantly having to try and navigate around some of those people and how do you get the information out of these people um, that you need to get. So you've already kind of seen that and learned that. So it, it definitely helps you anywhere else that you go. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Great wisdom. Thank you for sharing that. The I guess the final question I have, and it just kind of sparked my curiosity when you were speaking, when you were doing these work terms, I mean, early on in your career, were you assigned a mentor or did you have someone show you the ropes in terms of who to go to for what and what to say in that? Yeah, I did. So, you know, oftentimes when you're at these big firms, you're on teams, right? And so you've got a, a junior staff, an intermediate staff, a senior staff, you've got a manager, sometimes there's a senior manager, then you've got a partner. Uh, and everybody has at the firm, you have a like a counseling manager, you have a counseling partner that you can go to anytime and bounce things off of. And so, you know, the counseling partner that I had manager at the time there, like I, I'm still good friends with him today. Uh, and he moved on to become partner and all that. Um, but he was he was very critical for me in terms of staffing me on the right jobs, making sure I got the right experience. Um, you know, connected with the right people. Uh, it was very, very influential in my my early development uh, at the firm and just recognized, you know, hey, he, he could use work in this area. Let's put him on this job. He can develop here. So let's put him here. Kind of took me under his wing in, in that sense. And that was a huge, huge learning and, and development for me. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like it. And clearly it's paid off, right? Because I mean, you are where you are as a director of finance for a, an international, uh, what would you call them, a, a global? They're a, a global creative marketing agency. Let's go one with of that. The, yeah, yeah. One of the, the top five in the world. So, Yeah, that's great to hear. Dave, thank you for coming on. Uh, before we before we sign off here, is there any other, anything final you want to say? I'll give you the last word before we close up. Last word. Wow. Just always remember who your audience is. That's it. From a, any any communication standpoint, especially when it comes to numbers, always remember who your audience is. That's, that's really all I would end with. All right, Dave. Yeah, that's more than enough. Thank you so much again for, for sharing your time. And we really appreciate it. And I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me.